Meet the Aquanics is now sponsored by Audible.com. As part of this sponsorship, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day trial so you can check out the range of titles that they're offering. Currently, Audible has over 180,000 books to choose from for either your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To help support this podcast, please go to www.audibletrial.com slash And now, on with our next episode. Well, hello everyone. Uh, thanks again for those of you who have decided to join in live uh, on this YouTube uh, stream and for those of you who are downloading again uh, off one of our accounts, either off iTunes or SoundCloud, welcome to the next episode of Meet the Aquanics. Uh, today is our 30th episode, um, which is great. Uh, we've managed to do 30 of these things uh, within the year. Uh, we started this podcast series uh, a little under a year ago, uh, back in, in March of, of 2016. And I'm quite uh, happy with both the reception that we've gotten from this and uh, the level of participation uh, that we've managed to attract from uh, the quantum community worldwide. Uh, and that being said, uh, for our 30th uh, episode, uh, I'm pleased to have Professor Jung San Kim uh, from Duke University in the US, uh, who's agreed to sit down and, and give me an hour of his time to have a chat about uh, iron trap quantum technology and, and what's going on uh, with his work. So Jung San, thanks for uh, joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to have this opportunity. So usually uh, the way I get these things started with everyone is to just sort of launch into a bit of a bio of yourself, uh, sort of how you, you came about working on quantum technology and uh, what kind of stuff you're actually working on. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I started um, actually my uh, graduate work in, uh, in quantum optics. Um, and this was in the early uh, 1990s uh, when I came to, to Stanford to um, join Professor Yoshi Yamamoto's group. Um, and I actually started in his group in early 1993. Um, and back then, uh, you know, quantum computing or um, uh, was not quite a, a strong research field yet, although I think my advisor had um, interest from the 80s uh, thinking about uh, quantum uh, quantum computing as a computational technology. Mm -hmm. uh, my thesis work was mostly in semiconductor-based quantum optics. We were trying to make uh, small devices, um, light-emitting devices that can generate non-classical states of light. Uh, more specifically, I worked on semiconductor laser squeezing and single photon generations and detections and from uh, mesoscopic, uh, very tiny uh, light-emitting diodes. <laughs> Um, but it was a very exciting times. Um, you know, we we had some very uh, interesting group of uh, colleagues um, in my group back then. Um, for example, Ike Chuang was a graduate student with me at the same time, and he was very much interested in quantum optics implementation of quantum logic gates um, even before uh, the the Shor algorithm was discovered. Um, so all of that um, boom uh, in terms of early discoveries happened uh, right in the middle of my graduate career. Um, but uh, my focus was very much on looking at uh, quantum optics effects uh, in both optic, uh, photonic and electronic systems, and that was my thesis work. Um, I finished my work in late 1990s, and then I actually left the field of physics. I went to Bell Labs, um, and there I started working on much more practical uh, technologies. Um, more specifically, I worked on optical communications, and, and we used these micro-machines uh, to build large-scale optical switches. Um, that was very uh, uh, hot at the at the time during the uh, telecom uh, boom uh, in the mm -hmm. late 90s and early 2000s. 
Um, so I worked in optical technology for about three years, and then um, it, it turned out that the, the telecom bubble actually popped. Um, oh, in the early 2000s. Yeah, in the early 2000s, that was 2002. Um, and then I spent some time um, to looking for um, a contribution in the wireless cellular phone technology. So because of my, the Bell Labs was working on uh, base stations, um, I worked on some cellular communication technology. Um, and that's where I actually ended up uh, learning a lot about digital signal processing um, mm -hmm. and nature. Um, but that's when I also started thinking about um, the possibility of moving back to, to academia to, to, to work on something that is a little bit more of a longer term rather than working in a mature um, communications industry. And very uh, fortuitously, um, it, that's, th there were some of the Iron Trap groups um, and researchers at NIST have approached uh, Bell Labs. Um, and Richard Slusher, who was our um, back then the director of our optics, optical physics research department, um, and I started uh, looking into the uh, the field of ion trap quantum computing. Just, we started just uh, browsing and reading papers and had a little study group on the side trying to understand what the topic was all about. Um, and that was actually in the early 2004. Uh, and that summer in June, I, I left Bell Labs and joined Duke University. But it was uh, between the January and June, um, Dick and I uh, read enough and we had enough ideas to bring some to, in along the lines of bringing new technology into this uh, trap quantum computing field um, and although neither of us had any experience working with atomic physics uh, I think we decided to um, to make a jump and, and change our careers um, so um, independently Dick was Dick stayed at our labs and got it, got into this field and I, I came to Duke and started thinking about these problems and decided that was going to be my major um, field of research um, and I spent a lot of uh, first maybe two or three years really learning what this technology and, and the experiments were all about <laughs> I was yeah. very fortunate to to benefit from the generosity of uh, Dave Weiland and Chris Monroe and all the, the researchers in this community who are very eager to, um, to educate uh, people like a novice like myself um, about the, the challenges of the experiment uh, so that we could come up with interesting technologies. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting sort of narrative is to sort of, you came back into quantum computing and, you know, you got to pick. You get to say, well, what, what technology am I going to be interested in? What technology am I going to work on? And, and obviously, you've fallen into to iron traps. Um, what motivated this? Was it just the people that you knew? Or was it a, a particular sort of aspect of iron trap technology that you found attractive? I mean, why didn't you go into superconductors or linear optics or something like that? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I think part of that is serendipity. Part of that is... Uh... You know how things um, you know unfolded in terms of me getting exposed to uh, I mean us at Bell Labs getting approached by the iron trapping group, um, but I think more more importantly um, I think as we looked into you know how these experiments are done, um, you know part part of uh, my uh, you know experience and learning at, at Bell Labs was really trying to build much more integrated optical systems right mm -hmm. so. Um, you know, the electronic systems, of course, we know the integrated circuits is a highly scalable and, and uh, integration and integrated technology. Whereas, uh, you know, back in those days, the fiber optics and, and lasers were not like that. Although, you know, the telecommunications industry really uh, was, were demanding the le higher levels of integration for optics and photonic components, 
uh, they were not being printed just like silicon chips were being printed. We just did not have that level of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, but people did um, think a lot about uh, you know leveraging microfabrication techniques and uh, array technologies. You know, people make big fiber arrays using silicon as a base plate, uh, defining by lithography and etching where the fibers need to be uh, placed. So there, there were just a lot of uh, um, you know, more of a assembly type of, uh, technologies that were, were really being being developed in that community. And I, I, I really, uh, I think the, the big optical switch that we built is really a combination of those technologies coming together to build a reliable and, uh, and complex uh, systems that with robustness of a, of a commercial deployment. Um, so I think when we looked at iron traps, it, it is true that we actually, you know, read some papers, but we did not actually um, decide to read all the papers, survey all the technologies, and pick um, pick one. We certainly did not have the luxury of doing that. Um, but I think when Iron Trap came in, and we uh, we were approached with the Iron Trap uh, community, and we started uh, reading and, and thinking about this, the more and more we were convinced that there was a lot of uh, technologies that were uh, being developed in the telecom industry that could come in and really make a difference. Um, right. And and that that prospect itself was exciting enough um, so we got we got fixated on that so i mean where do you see the technology now i mean we've, we've had an iron trapper on the podcast before mike beardchick from from sydney uh who sure. sort of give us a bit of background on the on the technology that he's building um mm -hmm. we've had all kinds of different uh, guys come on and talk about stuff in superconductors and linear optics and, and silicon Mm -hmm. um, iron traps, I, I think, is, is fairly safe to argue, is one of the big two uh, technologies that seem to be working at this point, along with superconductors. Yeah. Uh, um, where do you see, I mean, the work that you do sort of in place when it comes to big corporate efforts such as Google and IBM, who have seemed to push along the superconducting route rather than the iron trap route? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, th I think. My, my contribution for the for the past twelve or so years um, was was mainly uh, you know, two aspects. One is bringing new techno enabling technologies that can improve either the performance by orders of magnitude or you know uh, improve the stability of the systems. Mm -hmm. um, but the other was much more of a um, looking at the whole experiment and experiment that that's what it was ten years ago. Um, and, and thinking about turning that into a viable system, right? So when you turn an experiment, I mean, typical ion trapping experiment, you, if you have been into one of these uh, atomic physics labs, um, they typically have a huge optical table on, in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. With lots, lots of hundreds and hundreds of uh, optical components on the table. Um, and, you know, instrument racks, overhead racks full of uh, equipments that's driving the thing. Um, and you know these are all you know very carefully tuned. Um, that requires day-to-day um, -day maintenance from graduate students and, and postdocs to, to run the system. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that arguably you know that that's the way thing, things are done for decades in in, um, in, in, in atomic physics. Um, but then you look at these um, uh, transmission systems, WDM, long-distance transmission systems, where you have hundreds of lasers uh, all in an instrument rack. Right, all frequency stabilized and modulated, and, and you have fibers coming out, and, and they, 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 they look really more like a uh, rack full of instruments that are much more contained in the system. Right? And, and so it, it, just looking at the picture, picturing between these two, 
um, you can take the complex ion trap experiment and then identify what the key components are needed mm -hmm. to run that thing. And then each of those uh, key components can be defined as a subsystem that somebody can assemble in a much more compact form. Yeah. Um, so you can actually now take that complex experiment and start to uh, define them into subsystems uh, that you can assemble into a more complex uh, uh, operational system. Uh, so that systems design approach is is really uh, really what I was was interested in in uh, you know thinking about right. So I think I think that those two um, are the focus of the uh, the effort that I've had. And in my mind, you know, it, I'm tr I, the superconducting quantum computer will, will will would not have passed the test of uh, quote unquote product ready system mm -hmm. if the closed cycle dilution refrigerator were not invented. Right. right. If, if you had to transfer helium every day into your quantum computer, um, I don't think anybody in the industry would have thought that would be a viable system. But there are some very seemingly mundane uh, progress that converts a scientific experiment and, and make people believe that it could be a commercial product. Right. Yeah. Um, so. I think I think in in ion trapping uh, there are many elements like that uh, that we've really uh, enabled over the last ten years, um, in a in a very carefully decided way. I mean, there were things that we thought we had to fix um, to to break that perception that this will never be a product. It, it's always going to be a scientific experiment. Uh, two, yes, this could actually be turned into something reliable and and, and mature. Uh, I think part one of that is uh, these uh, microfabricated silicon traps. Mm -hmm. Um, that is over the last 10 years, it has uh, matured so much that I think that is the best platform to do most uh, quantum gate operations. Although there, there is a little bit of uh, remaining issues in in, uh, in heating rates and things like that, people have to iron out. But I think um, everything we learned today, everything we have learned to date, uh, really gives us uh, all the confidence in the world that they are the the the, the perfect perfectly manufacturable platform for building traps. Uh, and then you know the uh, stable laser systems. Um, how do we actually implement all these gates? How do you control all the pulses in a fairly programmable way? Mm -hmm. there's, a lot, there's a lot of digital uh, control electronics that were uh, developed and, and matured over time. Uh, so as these components do come together, um, I think today we uh, we are absolutely convinced that um, we can break down our iron trap. Um, system into um, a, a series of subsystems that somebody can can put together and, and test and verify independently uh, and then we can just assemble them um, and and turn them into a much more um, robust uh, quantum computer type system so so I just think, oh, yeah. sorry. so I just wanted to just clarify because you do a lot of work with with Chris Monroe's group at the University yeah. of Maryland um, sure. So correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, his group's sort of more responsible for the direct fabrication of the, the iron trap qubits themselves. And you're sort of more in the area of, you know, all of this control infrastructure that sort of has to sit around the computer. We've got to miniaturize it, package it, automate it, et cetera, et cetera. And you're more responsible on that side. Well, it's it's really uh, not that simple. I think our operation over time have really permeated into each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so there there isn't a very clear um, boundary like that. I think um, both uh, what he's doing and what I'm doing, we always have to think about systems. Um, whether the system happens to be assembled in a way that a typical graduate student would do it, would do it on an optical table versus more professionally assembled, I, I think those are really uh, small changes. I think. 
um, the, the, if you want to really think about the division, quote unquote division of labor between Chris's team and my team, I think Chris really has been uh, focused on demonstrating uh, the, the quantum control pro protocols, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a gate protocol or if you want to think about how to run a five qubit system, um, he's uh, really been uh, pioneering the, uh, the implementation of those uh, uh, protocols and, and, and gates and, and algorithms uh, on the forefront of, uh, of that research area. Um, I'm more thinking instead taking maybe a, following a step behind and say, okay, you know, if, if he's doing this state detection, for example, how do I do it much better and faster? Right. Uh, so the performance gets better. If we're talking about logic gates, how do I add another nine or two um, in the fidelity to make sure that we have much higher performance? And usually those higher performance comes with a better and more stable system design. Yeah. Right? They're not necessarily inherent to um, the qubits. I think most of our infidelities and, and limitations really come from the control fields that we use. Right? We're not limited necessarily by the qubits themselves, the ion qubits themselves. All of our performance seems to be limited by the stability of the lasers and, and the, the level of control we can have um, to make sure that each control pulse is perfect. Um, and those are, uh, in some sense, you know, you have to uh, diagnose your system and, and uh, you know, uh, if there is a fundamental, not fundamental, if, if there is a significant, uh, you know, flaw in your system that makes certain parameters unstable, you have to start from scratch and think about how to engineer the system so that they're much more uh, stable. Um, and then, so I think I've really been adding nines to, to our fidelities, cutting down orders of magnitude and speeds at which we can, we can do things. Uh, or cutting down orders of magnitude, meaning cutting down the time it takes to do certain operations, whether it's mm -hmm. uh, state detection or or you know, photon-based entanglement generation. Um, so we've really um, and and you know if it's a factor of two, I don't think we are we're picking the right approach. We we're really talking about how to improve it by two orders of magnitude, right? Because I think those are the engineering progress that we need uh, when applied to the protocols that Chris is developing and demonstrating will lead to uh, processors that can do much deeper gates on, over a much larger number of qubits. So at the end, when it comes to the algorithm execution capability on a bigger system, I think, I think these, these numbers of nines that we add really make a difference. Right? So it sounds as though your, your focus really is on the computational side. You're really interested in building a quantum computer out of this system. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of, of sort of shorter term goals, I mean, do you sort of go down any other tangents in terms of viable quantum technology that could be done on the, you know, 10 to 100 qubit level? Yes. So um, I, I think, um, you know, if, if, we, if we look at the research that I do, and again, I think uh, what Chris um, does also highly parallels because we, we have a lot of uh, collaboration that overlaps. Um, I think the first and foremost focus that we have is how do we, you know, design a programmable quantum computer that mm -hmm. has a much larger number of qubits. So in Chris's lab today, uh, we have a five qubit system. He has a five qubit system operational. Um, the, the fidelities are pretty decent, but there's, they're, they're nowhere close to the state of the art uh, in mm -hmm. the community. Um, but the level of complexity that can, he can handle is, is really state of the art uh, compared to, to any other any other Antrac groups that we can think of. Um, I think uh, we actually ha are putting together our next generation system. I think we, we are planning on getting to about uh, maybe 10 to, 10 to 15 qubits uh, mm -hmm. sometime this year. Um, and then as part of our mo most recent collaboration, 
uh, we've actually taken all the knowledge that we think we know uh, to take our control systems and make them more stable. And these are mostly stabilizing the laser uh, beams that actually hit the ions. Um, and uh, I mean, putting all of that knowledge together, um, Chris and I, my team, have, have really designed a, the next generation system that will scale up what, what Chris's current system is to something on the order of maybe up to 25 to 30 qubits. Right? And that system has been fully designed. Again, in this case, we have uh, done the designs with our subsystem vendors. We've actually found some strategic partners who can actually um, uh, construct these subsystems in a much more robust way for us, right? So when we say laser systems, rather than our students going into the lab and building laser systems, um, we're going to have some professional engineers um, package all the laser systems to, to, to spec and send it to us, right? So, so we, we actually have done these kinds of uh, um, arrangements uh, and, and collaborations with some of our partners uh, that are uh, you know, suppliers to, to our subsystems. Um, and, and that system is actually coming together in Chris's lab today. And, and we're hoping that will be up and operational again sometime this year. So and this is uh, just traps and shuttling or is it still? Well, um, for now, um, these will, uh, I, think, I think our goal is to make sure that we use uh, sort of, uh, microfabricated traps. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the uh, very first version of the system, we probably will not be doing a whole lot of shuttling. Um, although in this uh, recent IARPA program that Chris and I are working on, we're supposed to we're, our goal is to demonstrate uh, quantum error correction. Mm -hmm. And for quantum error correction, you actually have to read out some of the insula qubits uh, right. while keeping the data um, uh, stable. And for that, um, in, the, in the ion case, if you're making measurements on some ions, uh, we have to bring in resonant photons to, to actually destructively uh, collapse the quantum states, right? It's not destructive, it's non-destructive, but yeah. we have to, uh, dis to have a dissipated process of measurement. And those resonant beams can actually hurt the data qubits. Mm -hmm. um, so we are actually working on the, the traps that we're going, we are using today uh, will have the, uh, the ability to pull those ions and shuttle them away so that you can actually make the measurements without uh, necessarily killing the, the data qubits. So fr from that perspective, when we're doing a measurement in conjunction with uh, retaining data, um, I think we're going to be introducing some shuttling capabilities. And, and those you know, capabilities have been fully verified, um, at least in my group, and, and also uh, quite operational in Chris's team. So this would be a 2025-ish qubit experiment in the next year or so? Well, I think to get up to 25, I think our system will absolutely be capable of trapping 25 ions. Mm -hmm. Whether we can do a full controllable quantum operation on, on 25 qubits, I think that will probably end up taking a little bit more time. I think we're going to take small steps at a time. So we'll probably get to 10 or 15 this year. Um, but absolutely, the hardware that we build is capable, is going to be capable of expanding all the way up to about 30 or 32 qubits. Okay, well, that should be pretty cool. I mean, if you can get even 10 to 15 during the next 12, 18 months, that would be quite an effort. Um, yes. Especially if you can do it in this sort of uh, fully programmable way like the 5 qubit device already does. That's right. So, yeah, so I mean, this is... Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> So this sort of jumps into the next thing I wanted to ask you about because you and Chris have also um, founded a recent startup, INQ, is that correct? Yes, that's true. Now, we've seen a few of these pop up uh, recently. I mean, Rob Shokoff's group's got one uh, in superconductors. Obviously, there's Rigetti Computing with, with Chad Rigetti who came out of 
uh, of that group and decided to, to go it alone. Um, I'm interested in sort of what the, the mandate is for INQ because I know, say, for example, Rob Shokoff's little uh, startup, it's quantum computing and quantum technology focused, but at the moment it, it looks as though it's, it's largely based around sort of uh, fabricating and selling prepackaged elements mm-hmm. um, for doing superconducting quantum computing. Um, mm-hmm. In contrast, say, to, to say Rigetti computing, which seems to be wholly and solely focused on pushing forward and building a quantum computer. How, how have you structured INQ and, and what sort of what's INQ going to be doing for the next couple of years? Yeah, so um, I think I think uh, you know it is uh, my my belief and Chris's belief as well, um, and that that it is time actually we we are actually ready to try to construct a full blown uh, quantum computer based on trapped ions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as part of this uh, IARPA logic program that we started back in um, um, May, April, you know, late March, early April last year. Uh, we went through the process of designing a system that we think uh, uh, is is well defined as in terms of uh, key subsystems and and the uh, the critical quantum features that's needed to do um, high performance gate operations on them. Um, so we we went through this system design again. As I said, that that first system is currently being put together uh, with a goal of probably being operational by by either late spring or, or early summer, um, and you know. Designing and constructing that system gave us a lot of confidence that um, that such a such a full blown quantum computer with iron traps can actually be be constructed. We, we are quite confident that this could be done. Now, how well it works um, and how easy it will be uh, for our customers or, or users to interact with it. I mean, those are some of the the new developments that have to be done. But in terms of uh, the hardware itself. Um, you know, getting up to, as I said, up to 32 qubits, uh, I think we have a very solid blueprint to build that. Um, so I think developing that into a more commercially viable um, and reliable uh, system um, is basically what uh, INQ's effort will be in the next couple of years. So it's fair to say that INQ really is in this for the quantum computing game. Yes. And you are, as far as I know, you are the only iron trap startup that I'm aware of. Is that correct? Um, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, I think you're the first. You're the first one that I know of with iron traps. Yeah. So I mean, when you were putting this together, and obviously you have to raise money and you have to do all this stuff. Um, how is the the sort of investment sector looking at quantum computing now? You must have had lots of conversations with these people. Um, are they excited? Are they knowledgeable in where we are, or is it sort of you know, they still have to look at uh, what's going on through the newspapers rather than uh, through the lab. Well, so, I mean, I've actually never seriously interacted with the investment community until just about a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, um, but I think what I have uh, learned is, uh, you know, they, they, they are very, some of them are very excited, not all of them. Right. Um, and, and, you know, there, there is just like we have all kinds of researchers with different kind of, you know, long term and short term goals. I think investment community is very much like that, too. Yeah. Um, there are uh, certain investment uh, firms who, who really like to um, uh, who really like to take long long term bets. Yeah. Right? So this, this is where. Yes, the business risk is there. Uh, yes, the technical risk is there. But if we, if somebody is able to do it, then uh, potentially the value that you can create is is very large, 
right? Um, so, so there are firms who are interested in, in that kind of a long-term bets. Uh, I would say not all firms are, are, are like that, but I think some, many, many firms um, with a long history of success actually have that view. Um, so among those firms, I think there is, we've learned that there is a very significant interest um, in, in finding the right technology and the right uh, uh, people that they want to invest in. Um, I think uh, the technology risk, if the technology risk is too big, I think the community will say, okay, we'll let the research community work on this a little bit more until a more concrete picture uh, can be found. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, the, the progress that was made over the last five or six years through the, the IARPA MQCO program and so on, um, I think a lot of that technical risk uh, has been addressed and, and people, a, a lot of us, the researchers are starting to, to be convinced that we're ready to build this thing. Right? And, and once they see that confidence from the technical side, uh, then the next question is, you know, what is the business risk? Mm -hmm. um, and business risk is something that the, the investment community um, understands very well. Right? They may not understand quantum mechanics, um, but if there is a, a good group of uh, technology people who says, look, I think the, the technical risk is manageable, um, and then they can really uh, think about, you know, how, go about how to, how to build a business. And that is an area they're, they're quite comfortable with. So I think it's come to a point where the sum of those uh, investment firms that are willing to take a long-term bet, uh, if they you know, meet with a, uh, a group of techni technical technologists who feels that, that this is something they could do, mm -hmm. uh, then I think the opportunity um, is there. Now, obviously, you know, they, they do a lot of due diligence, right, um, to, to make sure that, uh, you know, the... Um, the, the people have the credibility and the track record and also that the technical approach is sound and feasible and, 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 and all of that. Uh, and it's, again, you know, they're, they're not investing so you can, you can write papers. They're, they're investing so that you can create some value, commercial yeah. value. Right. Um, but, but I think, I think people have, um, and, and they, I also noticed that they all talk to each other too. <laughs> um, and I, that's been my experience too. They're more of a gossip farm than the physicists. That's right. So, so I, I think I think the the fact that there are some startups that are uh, getting a lot of traction, I think indicates that um, you know the confidence is scoring in that community as well. I mean, it's interesting. This is somewhat of a redundant question because you've started a company. Um, but I often ask people as to to are they seeing this uh, this kind of quantum technology this this stuff moving out from the academic sector and into the private sector? So. I won't bore you with that question. You've already answered it. But what I'm interested, certainly because you've taken the risk and you've decided to at least, you know, wade maybe ankle or knee deep in the, in the private sector at this point is what was the tipping point for you when it came to the technology? At what point did you realize and sit down and say, okay, now it's time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, as, as I said, you know, before getting into this field, I was very much in that sector, right? I was very much into taking technology and turning into products. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually launched, uh, developed technologies that turn into two different technologies that turn into products um, in, in my very short five-year stint at, at, at uh, Bell Labs. I think uh, when I came into academia, it's not because I, I was fed up with that. I, I wanted to do similar things, but in a um, technology area that was a lot more disruptive rather than um, very mature uh, market um, and, and quantum computing I felt was was one of those right 10 years ago it was not at all clear whether there would be a commercial path 
Um, but you know, my interest has always been, you know, what would it take to take this technology and turn it into something that that has a commercial traction, right? I think for the last twelve years, I've always had that as a goal in the back of my mind. Yeah. Um, so that that naturally steers a lot of the uh, research activities that we have, research programs that we put together, proposals that we write to governments about, uh, you know, some of the system skills things that we can do. Um, and over time, I think our, our effort has, has really uh, pushed along those directions. Now, when you say, you know, when, when did you think that we, we felt this was the right thing to do? I think when Chris and I actually uh, started our company uh, almost, um, almost a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and back then, of course, you know, we, we had some vision of how we thought the Iron Trap on computing, especially the modular version of it that we explored in, in the MP, IRPA MPCO program, uh, was a really viable architecture, right? Yet, yes, there are some uh, performance issues, and we had to improve the technology by quite a bit. Uh, but we didn't see any any fundamental limitations of why we can't scale the technology, yeah. right? Until we actually built a big enough quantum system. Um, and uh, but nobody has control over a big enough quantum system to see if quantum mechanics will behave, you know, in a scalable way or not, right? Mm -hmm. All indication is that quantum mechanics will scale, <laughs> and as long as that quantum mechanics scales, and that what we can predict is cannot technology scale. Uh, so we were we were quite convinced uh, in, in about a year and a half ago um, that uh, the 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 modular quantum computer architecture we had with uh, iron traps were actually uh, quite scalable. And this scalable, not just in the sense of we can put lots of qubits together, it's we have each and every technical element that's needed to control this to a scalable level, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's when we founded the company. We thought it would take us many years until we can we can put a convincing prototype together. Um, and we, we were thinking that this IARPA logical qubits program would be a, a really good opportunity to to really um, you know push the technology along those directions. Um, but I think the first few months of our, our design activity, uh, putting together a blueprint for the system that we will put together for this uh, for this logical qubits program, um, when when that went really well, uh, and we found really we were very fortunate to find the right kind of partners to work with. Uh, these technology developers, right, mm -hmm. that can that can build technologies that it's really hard to do at a university. Uh, then, then I think we got enough uh, confidence that this was really time. We're ready. We can actually do this uh, sooner rather than later. <laughs> um, so we ended up, uh, you know, launching the the actual operation and 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 quote unquote product development or prototype development within the company mm -hmm. um, several years earlier than we had originally anticipated. I was at the moment, so it's sort of a bit still sort of half university, half private, or I mean, do you delineate the two that you hire basically for INQ and then sort of your operations at the university go on sort of roughly independently? I mean, how's it structured yeah. at this point? Well, yeah, so, so I think the company operation will be, will be very independent, right? Um, but, but I think there will be some techno technological overlap Right. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the confidence of the system design really came from our university effort. Right. But I think uh, the um, all of our university funded programs have uh, project project goals mm -hmm. uh, that we have uh, discussed and agreed with our sponsors. Because right? I mean, the, the major reason that I'm asking is is because yeah. I <clears throat> talk to a lot of students and a lot of younger postdocs. 
um, about you know academic careers versus private careers. And now that the quantum technology is slowly moving into the private sector, um, this now becomes a viable career pathway for a lot of people that that we know who are coming up through you know graduate school and early postdocs at this point. Absolutely. So, yes. I mean, this obviously would be a goal for you is to sort of extract from this uh, this group of training that occurs worldwide when it comes to education and and, and developing skills in, in both theoretical and experimental quantum computing. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the reason that Chris and I couldn't start a company maybe five years ago was there weren't enough trained uh, staff members that we could hire to actually do this task. Right. I mean, there were some, but there weren't enough uh, and, and people with the right kind of mindset who are really, you know, a lot of the uh, PhDs that was trained in this field, you know, many of them think about academic careers. Uh, if not, they go out and because there was no such industry, they would they would go out and do other things. They move on to other things. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, you know, this just within the last few years, we, we felt like there were really, um, you know, a, a, a good group of uh, really well-trained scientists who had, in, in, in my mind, who had the engineers in them <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that really wanted to do this rather than look for an academic careers. And, and we've actually, um, you know, over, over the, I mean, Chris and I have been, been looking out for these kinds of people for many years. Um, and over time, we've, we've actually really recruited them into our, our uh, university programs. And I think they uh, will eventually, uh, as the university programs, you know, progress. You know, they're not there forever. So, so I think many of these staff members that we have uh, recruited uh, will eventually transition into the company. I mean, do the um, groups that you guys run at Maryland and Duke? Do you try to restructure them? You know, the the British are doing this quite well at the moment when it comes to their doctoral training programs. Um, that it really is about training for a new technology sector. Is that happening? you know, in your neck of the woods? Well, I think, uh, you know, if you, if you think about uh, PhDs in physics, right, they, they, their primary path is to go get onto the academic career paths, I, I, I would say. Um, whereas if you look at the PhDs that we trained in electrical engineering over the last 50 years, right? Um, I mean, these are the people who went and made Moore's law happen. Mm -hmm. they, they, the majority of PhDs out of our leading engineering schools, I mean, of course, many of them do become uh, academic professors, but, but a vast majority of them move into industry. You think about how many PhDs there are in Intel, and Microsoft, mm -hmm. and all these, all these industries. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I set up my group in an engineering department. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily um, think of myself as an iron trapper. I think of myself as a system, um, system developer. And I, I train my students and postdocs so that they can build systems. Um, I, you know, I've, I've trained them to build gigapixel scale cameras, which is not quantum at all. Right. Um, and, and I think that I'm training these students so that when they were uh, asked to build a quantum computer, right, um, they would know the engineering uh, design rules and, and principles so that they can go go build a complex system like this. So I've always viewed my group as a systems group. Um, it, we just happen to be most interested in quantum computer as a system that we want to build. Mm -hmm. um, so from that perspective, I've always trained students so that they could move into, and, and many of my students actually have transitions into industry. Because once this scale set is is, is gained, whether you worked on quantum computers or 
gigapixel cameras, right? The skill set to really dissect the system and, and come up with a design that's robust and, and, and putting it together and testing it and, and debugging it and improving the test the designs. All, all, there, there is a very systematic way of doing this, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so in a sense, I've, I've always been training people to do that. Uh, many of uh, some of my postdocs and, and students I've worked together are, are actually exactly tasked to, to build that either for the, the uh, university systems that we're building in the context of the Logical Qubits program, or um, you know, some of them have already moved on to the, uh, to the company and they are going to be building the, uh, a similar system for the company. But mm -hmm. you know, the, the system that we build at the company will actually have its commercial uh, uh, mission as the goal, whereas the systems that we build in universities will be, will be really used to meet the, uh, the goals of the sponsors' project, programs. So, I mean, the major point being is that, you know, a lot of students ask and, and we talk about, you know, academic pathways and these days, I think more than ever, becoming a professor is getting harder and harder and harder. But this shouldn't dissuade students from getting into quantum technologies at the grad level because there is a very significant industry that's starting to arise. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, um, Professorships getting harder should, should should never be, I don't know, my, my personal opinion is that should never be the goal of why you pursue a PhD, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> well, I, sure. Professor, right? Um, I mean, when, when I left uh, academia, I went to Bell Labs, you know, we, I mean, I went there as a postdoc, but within a year, I was convinced that I didn't want to become a professor. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so I, I, the, the, the product development and the industry was going so exciting that I, I was determined I was going to stay in the industry. Now, of course, that view changed after, after a few years. Um, but I think uh, I, I would always like to argue that um, you know, the, the professional career path at, at industry can, it is actually extremely exciting. Right? Um, and, you know, but I mean, I, the point is now that they can, they can take that pathway and still be embedded within quantum information and quantum computing. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, the original passion that got them into it. Yeah, I, I think it's only going to grow. Um, and, and I think I, I think if the trend continues, I think there will be a demand uh, for universities to actually train people for the industry rather than for the academic world. Um, well, that seems, especially in the UK, that seems to already be a thing. Yeah, and I'm not surprised. And, and I think that trend hopefully will, will, will continue to, to grow. Um, you know, I, I point to, you know, the role of, uh, say, Stanford's engineering school in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s in, in building Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think we, if, and, and that's how the, the talented people that were trained through that type of programs is really what, what made most law in Silicon Valley happen. Um, whether, I mean, it, it, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty whether quantum will, will end up becoming that kind of an industry or not is yet to be determined. Um, but I think we can still uh, put a lot of talented people out there and, and you know, whether this mission of building a quantum computer succeeds or not, uh, they will learn a lot in that process and become a very valuable uh, engineers with commercial uh, focus. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, in that way, I've always tried to be fairly optimistic when it came to students is to say, no, the future is not as dim as you think if you pursue uh, <laughs> this kind of education. Um, don't let the pessimism of certain other people stop you from doing it. Yeah, no, I think I think it's always exciting, right? And the students should not necessarily. I, 
you know, students should not necessarily worry about exactly what they're going to do after they finish their PhD. Yeah, I, I, think, I think those are, I've, I've, I've never actually predicted where I'll be, you know, more than six months ahead of time. Well, <laughs> I always ended up in jobs that I never imagined. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been stuck in Japan for 10 years and I never saw that one coming. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> you never know. So, I mean, we're getting up to, to 45 minutes now, so we'll, we'll sort of start to round this up. But uh, as usual, when I get people on, onto the podcast to have a bit of discussion, I like to hold their feet to the fire a little bit and sort of press them for a prediction in the next five or so years, either in general with the, the entire field itself or more specifically with your efforts and, and what you hope to get done uh, with IMQ and, and Iron Trap technology within, say, the next five years to, to a decade. Yeah, sure. Actually, let me start by backtracking a little bit. I think when sure. I got into this field, you know, in 2004, um, you know, the consensus, consensus in the community was, you know, practical quantum computer that's decades away, right? Mm -hmm. 50 years away, 30 years away. Um, I actually never felt it was that far away. If I had felt that it was 50 years away, I don't think I would have started working in this field. Well, you were a minority. Yeah, I was a, I was a, an absolute minority, probably yeah. the, one of the most optimistic uh, uh, persons. Um, but being an engineer, as I said, I, I think I'm a system construction is my, is my passion. Um, being an engineer, uh, if I didn't, if I wasn't convinced that we could do this in the next 15 to 20 years, right? Um, I am not sure if I've taken this path. Mm -hmm. So I've always been very optimistic, and I continue to 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 be the case. Um, I, I really think that a programmable quantum computer, um, I mean, we already have one. And I, IBM has a, has a publicly available quantum computer, a programmable one uh, at mm -hmm. five gigabit levels. Um, I, I think within the next two years, we'll, we'll have uh, you know, quantum computers in the 30 to the 50 qubit scale that, that are programmable. I think that will become available in the next two to three years. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think by within the next five years, um, again, unless quantum mechanics tells us that you know handling these large qubits has more complexity that than we recognize today right unless you know there's something about quantum mechanics we don't know about today yeah so <laughs> um, something kicks in when we get to 50 qubits that we had no idea existed that's right so so my my prediction is uh, we will get to complexity levels where the quantum systems that we can control will be way beyond what classical simulators uh, computer computations can computers can can simulate or, or calculate. Mm -hmm. I think we'll get to that point absolutely in the next five years, or uh, we'll discover that quantum mechanics does not allow us to do it. And my joke is the consolation prize for that will be a Nobel Prize, right? It will be a new type of science we discover. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but, but as long as uh, quantum mechanics um, is true and, and we can continue to push the technology development, I think uh, um, you know, what people refer to today as quantum supremacy or, or you know, building quantum systems that cannot be simulated by classical computers. Mm -hmm. I think that will happen in the next, um, very optimistically in the next two years, mm -hmm. even the most pessimist pessimistically, I think in the next five years, unless the bottom fall out of our industry, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I think we're past that point now. When I finished my PhD, I thought maybe the, the bottom would fall out of this, but so far it hasn't, and I think it's gone the opposite direction. Yeah. Which is good for all of us. Yeah, so I, I think whether it happens at INQ or any other, um, I, I think it could happen at the university, but I think 
uh, once the industry, whether it's uh, big companies like Google and IBM or small companies like us, um, you know, once there is a highly focused engineering and technology effort, things will move at a pace that uh, we're not used to. And that's been the case whenever a uh, scientific project or a concept from, from academia transitions to industry. Yeah. And things will move at a very different pace and we'll be surprised what we face with this. But I think uh, one of these companies will, will get to that point. Yeah, I mean, dumping two or three hundred engineers on a project is a hell of a lot different scale than a, than even a large research group, which might only be twenty or thirty people. Absolutely. So, finally, before we we um, wrap it up here today, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to advertise? Anything interesting going on at Duke or you know anywhere in in your region uh, anytime soon? Well. Um... Sure. I, I, I think, uh, well, if, if I am to make a statement, I think IonTrap um, is a real technology. I mean, mm -hmm. I think uh, people can readily see that, you know, semiconductors and superconductors, because we, we have seen them uh, made at scale for classical processor purposes. Um, but I think the key, uh, it, what I'd like to emphasize in the ion trapping field um, is it is true that our, our qubits are, are extremely robust. We have very good qubits. Mm -hmm. um, and it is also true that uh, the scalable assembly of this kind of a thing um, has not been very efficient to date. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, we are, I, I am convinced that we have actually, we are, we are actually well on our way to inventing the right kind of technologies that will eventually make this scale. Right. So I think the, the, the focus of our effort is inventing the technology to make a scale uh, rather than uh, trying to improve our qubits because our qubits are really good. Right. Uh, and, and I think that technology development is, is a much more uh, manageable problem. Um, and as we make progress on that, um, I, I think we're going to be able to compete very well with uh, some of the solid state technologies. Oh, look, as far as, 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 <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, Look, you guys are all doing a great job, and I just want to see this system get built. So, uh, whoever gets there first, whoever gets there the best, doesn't really matter to me. I just want to see yeah. a computer. Yeah, and I think I think there, this is actually, in a, in a sense, a very healthy competition. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think it's not like we're. I mean, we we do talk to the superconducting community a lot. Um, I mean, a lot. And and I think there are eventually some real synergies we can use especially when it comes to maybe user interfaces, how people program these things. Um, you know, just like you can program, use the same program on a Mac or a PC, mm -hmm. right? It could actually have a very different hardware platform, but if the users can actually relatively transparently use both systems, I think that's going to really uh, help stimulate uh, new innovation in the space. So I think this really is a, a very healthy uh, interaction and competition. Um, and, and this is a really exciting time to be in this field. No, I agree completely. Um, just knowing what these systems require and the hardware that's that's necessary to build them, you know, most people are going to interface with a quantum computer just like the IBM machine. It's going to be yeah. over the cloud. It's going to be over the internet, and they're not really going to care um, what the qubits are that are sitting in a lab somewhere on the other end of that internet connection. That's right. So uh, once again, I think. Uh, well, we're hitting on to 50 minutes now, so I think uh, that should be it for today's podcast. So uh, once again, Jungsang, thank you very much for, for giving me an hour of your time. Uh, it's getting late in, in North Carolina, so I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Yes, you too. So thanks again, everyone. Um, again, 
as I always say, uh, please tell everyone you can about the podcast uh, and subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, SoundCloud. Um, our next guests are being confirmed right now. Uh, as soon as we have dates and times available, we'll obviously put them up on, on YouTube and our other social media feed. Um, but once again, just keep following us on Twitter and YouTube for any updates. So thanks again. Cheers.